0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
2: Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenbloom, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening.
3: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are coming to you with a special episode of Snacky Tunes, where we sit down remotely with both Helen Rosner and Royce Burke to talk about the current COVID-19 situation And how it's affecting the restaurant business, and small businesses, and food journalism, and just life in general. Um, We recorded this on Wednesday, and I say that, and we'll say it again later in the episode, in case anything has changed. um, We know that things are changing rapidly, so if something sounds off, or you can't believe we would say something like that, given current events and how fast they're changing, we apologize in advance and recognize that this is a very fluid situation. Uh, We are also looking at how and what we're going to cover on Snacky Tunes in the next few weeks. Um, While we would love to keep it business as usual, we think that a lot of people are looking for a place to share their stories or talk about what's going on. So we are offering up Snacky Tunes as a place for people to share their thoughts And talk about how their life is being changed and affected um, or the people they work with or in the community that surrounds them. So if you want to get in touch, just, um, I don't know, send me uh, a message on Instagram. I'm at Darren, D-A-R-I-N, Bresnitz, B-R-E-S-N-I-T-Z, or we'll check the Snacky Tunes Instagram or send it to Greg Bresnitz um, and we'll get back to you. Um, So anyway, uh, we didn't want to not play music because we just felt that we wanted to have a little bit of break, a little bit of just enjoyment of some of the things that we have always loved and Turn to um, in times like this. So you'll be hearing some music uh, from the show throughout this episode. And if you want some places to donate to, Helen talks about them in the show, and so does Royce. And then you could also hit us up on social media or hit HeritageRadioNetwork.org. There are great sources of information of how you can help um, in these confusing times. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on heritageradionetwork.org.
4: We talk about food, we talk about music, Music. with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
3: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Dara Bresnitz. We are happy to be joined once again on the show by Helen Rosner. Food correspondent for the New Yorker, but also a journalist on the developing coronavirus as a whole. So, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on what I'm sure is a very, very busy time right now.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I mean, it's a busy time, but it's also, I don't know, I think that things are happening so quickly that it's almost like they're not happening at all. Like, you reach a certain point where You know, if you step away for five minutes, it's the same as stepping away for a day and a half. So you reach a sort of existential plateau.
3: I hear you. Um, People will already hear a disclaimer at the top of the show because it's going to come out not live. And so we are going to have to make that disclaimer to say that if things have changed, you know, just appreciate that things are moving so quickly. Yeah. You know, you have emerged as a hub through social media, as a place for support and news, uh, mainly with your um, merch links and things like that to restaurants. Which, between that and gift certificates and how they're going to shift to takeout or new messaging, your Instagram account has essentially maxed out on like what information you can share. And I'm sure you're getting hit from all sides. Um, But what have you found that people are sharing? What has been the most surprising part of all of this um, as people turn to you to help get the word out about their situation from all over the country, if not all over the world?
1: Oh man, it's been, it's been sort of incredible. You know, I didn't intentionally set out to, to be um, a hub for merch links. I was, um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I've been glued to Twitter and to Instagram and to social media. And of course, sort of as someone who writes about the food world, I am I follow a lot of people who work in restaurants, who manage restaurants, who own restaurants, who are connected to the food world. And everybody is completely understandably freaking out. This is just a phenomenal existential crisis to the whole economic flow of the food world as we know it. And also, to everything else, but like to sort of specifically make it a food issue and one of the one of the things that 's so devastating about all of this is that in in previous crises, whether it's been you know something weather related whether it 's been like a hurricane or it's been something social or military or economic the infrastructure of restaurants still continues. People still need to eat. And that's, you know, the thing that makes food both so compelling and also in some ways so easy to dismiss is the fact that it's this absolutely essential thing. And the service of providing food to people is, you know, if if you don't receive food, you die. It's like this incredibly fundamental thing. But the nature of containing the spread of the novel coronavirus is directly antithetical to the way that we exist relative to restaurants. You, we, we shouldn't be spending time in close proximity to one another. We shouldn't be going to restaurants. We shouldn't be going to bars. Um, people are cutting down on ordering takeout. People are even nervous about going to the grocery store. So, you know, at every single level, this is just a devastating place for a person to be if your livelihood relies in some way on the restaurant industry. So... I was thinking and reading and realized that, you know, a lot of the restaurants that I love sell T-shirts and sweatshirts and hats and things like that. And I always like to buy merch from a restaurant um, Mm -hmm. if I can, because it's just sort of like a nice way to pad the check and give them a little bit of extra money. I know how tight the margins are. And in a moment like this, I think it's really, really exciting that that's an opportunity for people who might be wondering how they can help out, um, in maybe one of the sort of easier ways, right? Like it's not making a donation, which is physically easy, you know, in terms of like clicking a link, but sort of psychologically and emotionally, it's so much easier for us to engage in a transaction than to engage in a donation. And if you're like, well, I can buy like a cool sweatshirt that's designed by some artist and it like advertises some hip restaurant with a cool name that's like on the other side of the country, I can do something that I might want to do anyway, like engage in this, you know, aesthetic pursuit while also providing really critical support to businesses who are right now standing on the edge of this yawning abyss of existential nothingness. So I don't know, that was like a very long-winded way of getting to the point that I just started sharing links in my Instagram stories. And the response was immediate and tremendous. I started getting DMs from restaurants and from people who have no affiliation with restaurants at all, but just like have favorites from all over the country Mm -hmm. sending me links to their merch pages. And I just started aggregating them on Instagram. And I learned very quickly that you can only post 100 Instagram story pages a day before they start cycling them out. So, so I now have a couple of saved Instagram story highlights called merch and merch two. And we're about to finish merch two and start merch three with, um, links to buy cool stuff from restaurants and bars and coffee shops all over the country.
3: We normally wait to the end for people to talk about their social handle, (laughs) but if people want to go right now so they can uh, buy while they listen, where can they go?
1: Oh yeah. So my Instagram account is Helen R, H-E-L-E-N-R. Um, and if you are on my profile page, there's story highlights right at the top. And you can click on merch or merch too. Um, and you know, there are also a lot of other people. This has been really great. Like, I didn't invent the idea of sharing links to cool t-shirts on the internet. And so people have been, you know, DMing me and being like, Do you mind if I borrow this idea? I'm like, oh my God, absolutely. This is yours. Like, like, I have you don't need to credit me. So I've been seeing so many people creating amazing roundups of these in their local towns, in their communities for certain categories of restaurant. I'm basically not curating this in any way. I'm just kind of going in chronological order through the list of restaurants that people are sending me, but um, there are so many roundups of these and they're fantastic.
3: I mean, you bring up a good point about um, this being transactional. I give and I get, you know, or you give and you get, uh, and it's great to see that some of these places like Kochka Egg, some of the places that you directly posted about, those t-shirts are already sold out or sweatshirts. So so it's working.
1: Yeah, that's making me like. really happy. I mean, it was yeah. so yeah, it's making me really happy and it's also making me slightly concerned. So right. I I should I should rewind a little bit. Like when I said a minute ago that this is an easier form of transaction for people to engage in, I don't I don't mean well, I guess I do kind of mean that in a negative way. I think, but but as an indictment of all of humanity, right? I think that sure, um, we like to have cool things. We find a lot of solace in spending money to get a product. Um, it's also been really important to me personally to be giving money to support restaurant workers, not just restaurants as businesses. So I've been trying to make an effort to give donations to like community relief funds and stuff, which we can get to in a second. But I'd um, love to. But, you know, I love, I love that through some combination of, you know, reaching out to their own networks, having incredibly deep fan bases and communities that care about them. And then people like me and other folks who are sharing links to these merch that places like Kashka in Portland and Egg in Brooklyn are selling out of their t-shirts and being able to pad their bottom lines. But like, how long is that going to last? And that's what makes me nervous. I think that this is like you know, go fund me for healthcare. It's a case by case stopgap treatment. And it doesn't really address the fact that we have this massive infrastructure of restaurants in the United States that props up its customers and also props up its employees
5: that Mm -hmm. doesn't
1: have any sort of security, you know, as if restaurants disappear, so much is going to go with it.
3: Yeah, I think that is the larger and looming question, is that, all right, everyone sort of knows the first step right now, right? Shut down restaurants, employ social distancing, um, take out only, buy some merch, send some gift certificate, that's good for a week or two. Mm -hmm. But how can people help in the long run? I know you just mentioned some charities and things like that, Um, because I think that with the proposed government, uh, bailout that will eventually help restaurants. Right now, it feels very scattershot. So how does it get more focused? What do you see as a way for people to organize and to help put um, some guidelines or some just steps of how they can get help either through their local communities or the government at large?
1: Oh, God. I mean, if there were an easy and obvious path, I think there would be a lot of us telling you to do this right away. Um there's an organization that i know and that i really like called the restaurant workers community Fo- foundation um that's based here in new york where i am um and they've set up a dedicated relief fund for restaurant workers who've been displaced or had their income interrupted or who find themselves facing health problems in the in the wake of covid-19 um so i've been giving them money. And there are similar organizations in a lot of other big cities. And there are also restaurant groups themselves that are starting crowdsourcing fund options for their employees, which I feel... I haven't quite unpacked how I feel about that from a sort of moral perspective. And I don't know if maybe like out loud on a podcast is the right place for me to be untangling how I feel about something that I think is coming from a place of a lot of goodwill on the part of these restaurant owners, but does seem like shifting the burden of responsibility to their community instead of taking on the responsibility themselves as the people who provide their employees with employment. Um, David Chang has been an incredibly outspoken And Mm -hmm. very righteously angry advocate for independent and small restaurants on his Twitter in particular. Um, Today, the day that we're recording this podcast, there was a a meeting um, at the White House this morning with uh, President Uh Trump and the restaurant industry. Oh, I heard it. Yeah. And, you know, the restaurant industry, like in scare quotes, the people that he met with were like this were CEOs and C-suite executives from like Domino's Pizza and Chick-fil-A and
4: Wendy's um, mcdonald's like
1: Wendy's, mcdonald's i mean and so these are the huge chains which function in some ways like standard restaurants in terms of employment and things like that but the way that the u.s government is looking at them is not as restaurants it's as businesses because they're tremendous businesses with huge you know multi-billion dollar footprints um and the way that they operate and the legal obligations that they have and the legal incentives that they're given are not remotely the same as what is in place for even what we might think of as the most like Death Star like restaurant group, right? Like, you know, the most dickhead restaurateur with 35 shitty restaurants all over the United States and four locations in Vegas or something like that sure. is nothing compared to like the CEO of Darden restaurants in terms of...
3: Or Yum Brand or anything like
1: right, that. Right. Right. So so we really have these two parallel realities of restaurants in the United States. Um, and they're being treated differently, and they're being considered differently. And what Chang has been tweeting about, I think, with incredible articulation, is the fact that these independent restaurants are actually the lifeblood of America. I, mean, I think the majority of restaurants in the US are independently owned. And the majority of employment at these restaurants is it's not being funneled through some like megalithic corporation and so if there isn't consideration of this it all just disappears so what do you do i don't know what you do i mean like we do this sort of like ersatz socialism where we donate to these funds or we donate to gofundme's um you can call your representatives and your senators and be like look you motherfuckers you idiots like take care of us, like taking care of people, both as employees and as consumers involves making sure that restaurants and and food infrastructure continue to exist. Um, And then I don't know what else there is, like get angry and be angry in loud ways and put your money where your mouth is. And and I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, I have no idea. Everything is about to be so radically different. And I have no idea how it's going to be different. And I don't know what's going to happen.
3: You know, the news conference that happened and this we're recording on Wednesday with uh, Trump and everyone talking about, um, I guess, the trickle down economics of these large brands into franchisees and how that affects people with employees or businesses with under 500 people. You know, the the, the silver lining that I, I found in that is that they were talking about restaurants at all and it wasn't just the airlines it wasn't just the banks it wasn't things like that and there is more in the than in the past i've seen a recognition of the importance of restaurants in society and about how many lives are affected by it um you know new york it's one of the engine the the, of the economy and what do you think new york looks like after this is all done what do you think changes for the good or for the bad uh, when we come out of this crisis?
1: Oh man. I, you know, I don't want to cop out and not answer the question, but I think we don't know what the crisis is yet. I mean, we Mm. know that there is a a viral crisis, but there, and, and that's, you know, very real and very present and it's going to touch a lot of lives and it's going to take a lot of lives. But there's a, a massive, currently sort of shapeless and formless crisis of social culture and our existential sense of ourselves. I mean, you know, there right now people are just sort of getting used to the idea of staying indoors, of doing social distancing, of working from home, um, and it's a weird adaptation and I don't know what it looks like once we start getting used to this, you know, I mean, at first we were being told that this was going to be a couple of weeks and now I don't know if you're reading the same news sources that I am, but people have been saying it's more likely that social distancing measures are going to be required for a couple of months. And there was a story mm-hmm. that was published on Fox.com, I think earlier today that said that it's possible that we're looking at something that could be measured in years. So this is, um, in every respect, a dramatic recalibration of what our life looks like. So I don't know. I mean, what's on the other end. If we just think about this from like a restoring normal perspective, which I don't think is necessarily the best way to look at it, but it's definitely the least likely to send me in a freak out spiral. You know, it's definitely the case that a lot of bars and restaurants and other small businesses are not going to survive. But you know, man, it's so it's so huge. I think for for a very long time it's it's been kind of clear to me, and I think it, it's similarly clear to a lot of people who pay close attention to the restaurant industry, that the restaurant industry and the food industry in general are really just another way of talking about real estate. And whether a restaurant lives or dies and whether a restaurant can remain open or can open in the first place is so often dependent on its real estate situation. I think there's a reason that all of the oldest restaurants in New York City are restaurants that are located in buildings that they own, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a reason that, you know, these tremendous new developments that are going up in every single city always have restaurants at the anchors of them and that all of those restaurants have the same kind of anodyne slightly sterile hipster aesthetic to them. So real estate and and restaurants are absolutely hand in hand. And what you wind up looking at in a, in a case like what we're looking at right now, when restaurants might be closing for what they say is a temporary period of time, they're still going to have to pay rent, right? Like You still have all of these overhead costs. And if a restaurant stays closed for 6 months or a year and also has to pay rent for all that time. So you have these landlords who are taking in rent while the space that they're taking in rent for is not providing anything to the community and it's just sort of sucking money out of the bottom line of these businesses that are trying to sit there. I mean, I don't know what what it looks like on the other end. I think that that places that maybe didn't plan to close are going to end up having to, unless we have some kind of rent relief put in place. I mean, in my ideal situation, you see things that are happening in France and in Italy where the government, the federal national government is saying like, you don't have to pay rent, right? Like we're suspending the economy basically for this period of time in order to be able to emerge from this at the end with minimal scarring. But America kind of from an attitudinal perspective, and especially with the current White House, is not really the kind of country that tends to say, let's hit the pause button on the flow of money from tenants to landlords, even though that's going to be the thing that we need to do in order to not have like a holocaust of the restaurant industry.
3: Yeah, I mean, the only form of corporate debt relief that I've seen so far is Apple and Goldman Sachs essentially saying you can defer your credit card payment for a month.
1: Yeah. And like deferral is nothing, right? Like all deferral is, right. is kicking the can down the road. It means that like, okay, I can have like three weeks to breathe right now. But if I have lost my ability to pay my credit card bill right now, it's not gonna get any easier over the next month. And it's certainly if you're oh, if you're looking at this from the perspective of a small business owner or of somebody who is employed by a small business, um, I mean, that does fuck all, right? Like it, it, it really does very little. It's so depressing also that it's like the corporations who are taking the lead on this.
3: Yeah, I mean, I can only think that out of some sort of ironic twist on capitalism, that the best thing for business is to cancel all debts in some sort of, you know, budget relief on a national level. And, yeah. can, and push all rents and, and deferment is is paid off by a federal subsidy that doesn't have to be repaid because at the end of the day, that's what's best for the economy is the I, only way, yeah. really, the only way. Um, let's take a break. We're going to have some from <laughs> the archives. Uh, we gonna put a little music into this and then we come back. Uh, I want to talk about um, food journalism and how the coverage of of culinary culture and how we're covering this has been affected you're listening to snacky tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
5: every time i walked away thought that it was done and every try made became the one i counted on you knew me when i loved to lose and to lose again Seems we're either giving up or giving in But ooh, you girls, you drive me crazy Ooh, you girls, you drive me crazy
3: Welcome back to snacky tunes we're with helen rosner food correspondent for the new yorker and also covering large swaths of the coronavirus as it develops and i think it's safe to say that food journalism and how we cover restaurants is going to change for the foreseeable future um i know that we are taking a look at about how we cover things on snacky tunes and what we want our voice to be but you know, one of the most telling ones was Pete, Pete Wells's. I, I can't really call it a review, but in place of his review this week, which was supposed to be an eight seat sushi restaurant, more of just like uh, waxing on what does it all mean to be a restaurant critic now, or even talk about restaurants when let's be honest, we're not going to have restaurants to cover for, for the foreseeable future in the way that we used to cover them. So, what do you think is going to happen with food journalism what do you think is an appropriate level of coverage or do you think people just want to read about you know a new bistro in paris to have some sort of escapism and that's okay to balance out as we deal with all the other things that are happening
1: well you know food journalism has always had many faces i think that um restaurant criticism is definitely the aspect of food journalism that we think of first when you think about mm-hmm. food writing, but um, I think if you're a if you're not a restaurant critic and you're a food journalist or a food writer, you've kind of done all sorts of writing. You know, you you write about trends, you write profiles, but you also do political writing and you do business writing. And in times of crisis, there's a lot of sort of deep human reporting to do. Um, so, you know, Pete's review this week was interesting. I mean, you're right. It's not, it wasn't a review, right. And and he writes about the fact that it wasn't a review um, yes. and the decision that the paper made to hold the review, which I think made a lot of sense because whatever it, it was that he was going to be writing about isn't accessible to readers anymore. And for as beautifully written as one of his reviews might be, it also serves a service function. So what's the point of, you know, writing a fantasy review of a restaurant that functionally no longer exists? Um, Even though hopefully it will exist again when we're on the other side of all of this. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, you have your, like, Kim Seversons and Julia Moskins of the world who win a Pulitzer Prize for writing about the Me Too movement and Mario Batali and then also are, you know, doing kind of, like, sweet little cooking pieces about how people are making bean stew or whatever. I mean, you just, you, you got to have the range, I guess, if you're going to be a food reporter. Um, Sure. But what was particularly interesting to me about Pete's review this week is that uh, a couple of weeks ago, when, when the U S media and U S sort of readership started really seriously comprehending the fact that the coronavirus was coming our way and that things were going to have to change in order to slow the spread of infection and that our lives were definitely going to change in some way. Pete tweeted something like um, a little bit snarky where he was like, you know, I can feel the gears of food media shifting into sort of industry cheerleaderism. And he was a little bit skeptical of it. And it it opened up a really interesting conversation in, in the replies to his tweets. And I have to admit that I kind of agreed at first with the tone of his tweet. I've, I've, you know, been a food reporter through Hurricane Sandy and, you know, these devastating hurricanes that have been hitting Puerto Rico. And I wasn't a food journalist after 9-11, but I was reading food journalism. I mean, you know, there is definitely this like, let's roll up our sleeves, let's get in there, let's rebuild, let's build up the industry. And the point that Pete was trying to make in his in his tweet, I think, was you know, how much can we as food writers be relied on to critique and analyze the restaurant and food industry if we also, when the chips are down, are so easy to jump in and boost it back up? And I, it is a good and weird question. Um, and I think that like right now, you know, if you've read Eater lately, their homepage mm-hmm. is nothing but coverage of the trauma of the coronavirus on the restaurant industry. And, you know, Grub Street, Chris Crowley had a really great piece earlier about how this is just, you know, pulling the rug out from people because it's hitting businesses in a way that we don't know. So I think that there is a degree of human compassion that is inevitable if you're writing about crisis of this level, whether it's business crisis or existential crisis or like physical or meteorological, like you can't just be like, you know, a restaurant closed today in like a dispassionate voice because this is a horrible no. thing. It's not partisan to find this horrible. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm giving you a very meandering answer to your question, but, you know, restaurant... You
3: know, it's, yeah. I mean, I think no. the thing is that there there is no, I don't know if there's a straightforward answer, right? Yeah. I, I, I think that's the issue. And I think when there is something that is unseen and something that is a little bit, scary. And if you have a family and it's a lack of leadership uh, from maybe where you want it, um, whether it be government or community or things like that, and there really is no, like, if you have a restaurant, this is what you're doing, right? Because right. even though they said you can't dine in, that's where it stops. And that's not every city. And, you know, we're focusing primarily on New York and LA which have gotten somewhat clear guidelines. But, you know, um, as we speak, what about Kansas city? Right. Right. What about, you know, Tuscaloosa? What about the places that, you know, I haven't seen any regulation on street vendors or the taco carts or anything like that. Right. Like, so I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, you take a swing, right. And we could look back on this conversation. Uh, In many ways, you know, I looked at, uh, what Peter Meehan wrote two days ago for the times and that's already changed, right? you know? So it's, I don't know what journalism looks like.
1: I mean, it's, Uh, it's all changing incredibly rapidly. And I think there's, there's the aspect of journalism that is sort of outward facing, right? Like back in the day, the New York times, which now just calls the section food used to have two different sections. They had dining out and dining in, which I always Mm -hmm. thought was really great. And, um, and that is, that is the split in, in how we write about food, right? Like there's there's how we relate to restaurants and then there's how we relate to cooking. And that's also been very interesting to watch evolve over the last two or three weeks and especially over the last five or six days as things have started getting way more intense because what is a disaster of unimaginable proportions for the restaurant world, for the dining out world has actually been a boon for the dining in world, which is kind of weird and gross, but also like, I guess is a silver lining. I don't know. I'm very reluctant to say there's any sort of silver lining to something that's this monumental, but, you know, cookbooks are selling like crazy. Groceries are selling like crazy. People are learning how to cook who had never learned how to cook before because they're preparing to bunker down. So there's this weird, like pivot to an aspect of food that that we've also been sort of boostering for years and years in the same way that we've been boostering or at least you know covering restaurants as like a full contact social sport and so i don't know i, I you know chefs who are used to being in, in the public eye for running restaurants i've i've been i don't know about your email inbox but like i've been flooded with these pr dispatches from 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 publicists who are, you know, inviting me to talk to such and such restaurant chef who actually has a really great bean recipe that my readers might be interested in. Mm -hmm. So the the mechanism of like culinary fame and, and the commerce of culinary fame is still, is still churning away in ways that are sometimes kind of gross. But then at the same time, I'm like, I don't know, like your whole livelihood is being threatened. Maybe I shouldn't be so judgmental of the fact that you're pitching yourself as an expert on quarantine cooking.
3: To be honest, I actually like it. I think that people who have me- who maybe never looked inside the kitchen or thought about cooking or want to cook more can all of a sudden have someone like Massimo teaching you how to make pasta Mm
4: -hmm.
3: or something like that is some sort of comforting through the community um now where the monetization happens or if there's profit you know there's always that weird moment i remember post 9 11 when like the grace period of cashing in had ended and then every uh brand put out there we understand these are rough times but we're still open for business sort of you know New York Times full page ads. Um, so I get that the balance is weird, but you know, for, pe- for people who have maybe never cooked before, who have never even thought of stocking their pantry, um, mm-hmm. who don't know how they're going to feed themselves because they've only relied on eating out, I think there's maybe something where you look at these people who are experts or celebrities in the food world that are offering some comfort in this time.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I, I agree. I think I think that I'm I'm like definitely too quick to judge. I also think though that at the same time there is this consideration of like if I go to a restaurant and I spend a hundred dollars on a meal there and mm-hmm. It's because I feel like I have some sense of connection to or admiration for the chef who's the face of that restaurant. My hundred dollars gets portioned out into money that ends up in the pockets of probably two or three dozen people, right? Between the servers, yep. the dishwashers, the bussers, the purveyors, the night porters, etc. If I buy a celebrity chef's cookbook, or if I, you know, subscribe to their newsletter, or if I, you know, buy their bottled hot sauce or whatever it might be. I'm not sure that my money goes to support the same breadth of people. And I also am probably less likely to be sure that the people who are being supported by that, like the support system behind the celebrity face, are people who are in as precarious a situation as restaurant workers are. I don't know. It's I'm so all over the place about this. Like I want to throw all of my money at everybody in the world, like to the point where like yeah. I'm in need of people throwing money at me. But at the same time, I'm also like – I don't know. I'm slightly skeptical of some of the – Oh, God. I, I shouldn't like say this into a microphone. I think there are almost everybody – right now is acting in good faith and from a place of goodness and concern and I genuine so. care. But there are definitely some people who aren't.
3: And I mean, that's, I, cool. that's always going to be the case. But I think that if someone is saying, here's my favorite bean recipe, and then you can also order my beans through a non-independent store – Yes, like the tone is wrong, you yeah. know. Um, but if you're just out there and you're being like, Hey, like this is weird, and I don't know what where else to put my emotions or my feelings, and I think that by me sharing a recipe or um telling you how to cook rice or make soup and how to freeze it, and here it is for free on my Instagram page, yeah, godspeed, you know. No,
1: and that's and true, you're totally right. I mean, I'm I'm I think I'm just I
3: don't know. I'm feeling four thousand. Know, I'll my inbox my inbox isn't uh filled with a hundred uh PR requests that, you know, you can't tell which ones are coming from a good heart or, or from a bad spot. But I think I think this is just it's 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 we're in the heart of a crisis. We're at the yeah. beginning of it. And um it's I don't know, it's it's tough. I, I don't think I don't know if when we come back from it, that things even ever will ever look the same. I, you know, you said earlier about, uh, normal. And I don't think that that word can ever really be applied again. I think there's just going to be new. Yeah. Because what will be normal, we will have never seen before and having lived through New York during Sandy, um, and the financial crisis and things like that, like, it never went back to what it was before. Yeah. And I think that this is even even grander in the scheme of things changing because it's a national level, right? Like Sandy was the East Coast, you know. I mean, you look at Nashville a couple of weeks ago with their tornadoes um, and the rest of the community wasn't affected out of it outside of the immediate era, area. But this is on a scale we've never seen before. And, you know, um, that
1: reminds me of a really interesting thing that I was talking to a restaurateur friend about. She was telling me, or maybe somebody tweeted this. I don't even know where the information is coming from anymore. But I was reading somebody saying that there, um, that there, were, it, was, it was a restaurateur in Nashville. And she was saying that one of her friend's restaurants had been destroyed by the tornadoes. And a couple of weeks ago and that she was actually like jealous of her friend because the fact that her restaurant was destroyed by tornadoes meant that she got an insurance payout and Hmm. restaurants right now. And this is a super important thing that I should have brought up earlier when we were first talking about this. um, Many restaurants and it depends on a lot of things, but many restaurants have um, insurance coverage for what's called business interruption. And if the government at whatever level Orders restaurant closures, then they can cash in on those insurance payments or those insurance premiums. And so if Bill de Blasio or Governor Cuomo or President Trump says all restaurants have to close, like by order of the government, then all of these restaurants that have business interruption insurance will be able to get an infusion of money that can sustain the restaurant and can sustain their staff through this period of time. But by being in this like twilight where restaurants have not been ordered to close, they've just been ordered to shift their service to takeout, out um, and have been given quarantines and or, or cur- curfews and things like that, you don't allow these businesses to take advantage of the safety measures that they themselves have already put into place. So I was seeing people on social media over the last couple of days, basically begging to be closed. If the government would just close the restaurants, it would be better for the restaurants. But by trying to sustain a sense of normal for consumers who rely on restaurants to get their food, as opposed to trying to sustain the continuity of the source of normal for consumers, which is the restaurants, we're fucking everybody in every direction.
3: But in that two sides of the same coin situation, where that does help out the restaurants, and I've seen restaurateurs begging to be officially shut down by the government, you know, is then the food supply strong enough where there are no restaurants. There is no yes, table. Yes, no, it's it-
1: totally... It's, of course it's strong enough. It's completely strong enough. We have enough food in the United States right this very second to feed every single American for a goddamn year. Like, it's totally strong enough. It will be a huge pain in the ass. And, like, people will have to sure. do their own cooking. But, like we will figure it out. I mean, this is not going to be easy. It's already not easy and it's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder and weirder and it's going to get less and less familiar and we are going to become more and more destabilized and we just kind of have to accept that. So I think, Mm. you know, restaurants serve essential functions on so many levels, including feeding people. But if every single restaurant in America closed right now, America wouldn't starve, America would just change. No.
3: Yes. And there are a lot of backups for this type of situation that are absolute emergencies that does get food into people's homes.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
3: but it's scary. It's scary to say that a source, a national source, of a place where people get their food or their livelihood, are just closed. And while it's painful now, it'll be better in the future.
1: I don't even know if it'll be better in the future. I mean, I, I would like it to be, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to
3: remain a little I have <laughs> yeah. a little optimistic uh, and say that hopefully yes. that the pains that we're taking now uh, have some benefit in the future.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's that's the point, right? Is Is that if we closed all the restaurants right now, we would not be doing it in order to like wipe them from the earth. We'd be doing it in order to preserve them, so that there's a greater likelihood of having a normal that we can go back to. Um, I think you know there needs to be direct cash infusions, like you were saying. There needs to be debt relief. There needs to be sort of an instant and mobilized ad hoc infrastructure that allows this network of of businesses and employments and third spaces and public bathrooms and places to get a hot meal and places to see people that are not in your home. I mean, the the infinity of things that restaurants provide to Americans and to people all over the world is not replaceable, right? Like even if in some horrible way, none of the restaurants right now survived this process and we had to start over from scratch, we would still... Be starting over from scratch, creating restaurants. Like It's not going to disappear. But I think that the best way to preserve some semblance of what we have now, the specific restaurants, the specific spaces, the livelihoods of mm. these specific people at every level of the employment hierarchy is to recognize that we have to work preemptively to save them.
3: I think that's a great point. I think that the new shape and form of restaurants is something that we'll be seeing in the next few weeks, few months, a few years. Now I want to sort of bring it back to helping directly in the immediate future, the next few weeks. Um, I know that we have merch and we have gift certificates and things like that, but are there any charities or any, uh, you know, unionized centers of places that people could donate to or send relief to um That are doling out money to people who may not own a restaurant or may have already been let go from their job. Uh, People are playing for benefits. Absolutely. sort of central type of stuff that you can sort of let the listeners know about?
1: Sure. So um, the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, which I already had mentioned, does really Mm -hmm. incredible work. They are, in general, a group that um, is dedicated to wage fairness and gender equity and stuff like that. But right now they have a dedicated fund for COVID-19 relief. Um, The One Fair Wage Emergency Fund um, is uh, providing direct cash assistance to individual restaurant workers um, who are having income interruptions due to the coronavirus. Um, there's been a, a, a really interesting thing that's been put together called um, restaurant dining bonds. So if you go to supportrestaurants.org, um, there are a lot of restaurants that are basically selling discounted gift cards. That's effectively what this is. Um, they get a cash infusion now, and then later on you can realize your cash infusion for greater than the amount that you put in. I think in most cases, it's something mm-hmm. like a 20% or a 40% discount. So if you buy a $100 restaurant bond, then that could pay off um, later on when they're ready to reopen in like 120 or $150 worth of credit for the restaurant. And that's a really great one for supporting restaurants at the business level. Um, the previous two that I'd mentioned are about sort of individual restaurant workers and, and giving them direct cash. Um there are also a lot of individual restaurants that are sending up funds both for their specific workers and for their communities and the restaurant communities that they're part of. I would say if you go to the um, the, the food page of whatever your local Indie food publication is. If you live in a city that has an eater, they've got a lot of them. The website Taste Cooking has been setting, uh, keeping a really great aggregated list of places where you can donate to support restaurants and restaurant workers. Um, The Times, I think, has been keeping a running list, and of course, you know, Twitter, Instagram, people are are really doing a lot of work putting these lists together, and it's fantastic. Um, But I would really, really urge everybody who's listening, I feel super weird, like direct address to you, the listener. Um, if you can afford to buy cool merch, I would also really, really urge you to make donations to the individual restaurant worker funds. Um, it's so great to keep the businesses afloat. And so many of these businesses are funneling that money directly into their workers. Like Tom Colicchio, for example, at all of the craft restaurants, if you buy a gift card for a craft restaurant, 50% of that is going directly to support the workers right now. And there are a lot of restaurants that are doing things like that. But if you give to these worker relief funds, um, you can make sure that your money is also going directly into the pockets of the dishwashers and the busboys and the employees who might end up getting left behind if the business decides that they have to close or they have to lay off or furlough their workers.
3: Amazing. Well, Helen, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us and for all the work you're doing, getting the word out. Um, Once again, if people want to follow along about, update information or check out any of your stuff that you're writing about, uh, the food or the COVID-19 situation, where can they go to find all that?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at hells, H E L S or on Instagram at Helen R H E L E N R.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you so awesome. much. We're going to have a, another song from the archive here on snacky tunes on heritage Dot org.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
4: Hello
3: and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. We are so honored and happy to be joined by Chef Royce Burke of Secret Lasagna, longtime friend of Snacky Tunes and just a great guy all around. Royce, <laughs> welcome back to Snacky Tunes.
6: Thank you, Darren. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: So obviously these are very unsure, very uneasy times for the, for the world. And part of our world is the restaurant industry. And you have really offered yourself up as a hub and social network um, for a lot of these chefs. What are people sharing? And what has been the most surprising part of the type of conversations you're having with these chefs and people in the industry?
6: I mean, you know, and it's less of it's it it feels like less of offering yourself up as a hub and more just like everyone in your family is freaking out and trying to figure out how to handle you know the way we all make a living kind of imploding by the second um you know and it's 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 tough because it's when you put it an industry like this where the restaurant model is already so challenging and has just continually gotten more challenging and then just put it under a stress test like this, you know, you, you really see who, who actually, who actually cares about their employees, who doesn't, who, you know, it's, it's, it's been very telling. It's been kind of shocking to see just how varied the reaction is, how, um, but it's also just been, it's been inspiring as hell to see people, really step up and, and try and find ways to take care of their people to keep feeding people. Um, That's been, that's been the most amazing. And also just people, you know, like I, you know, I'm going to probably come back to this a lot, but like one of the best examples being set right now is the rustic Kenyan restaurant family and the way they've been handling this and making sure they're taking care of their people at the same time. But you know, Jeremy Fox, I mean, one of one of the most. Him and Joseph Centeno, just some of the things that I've seen them share as two people that I really respect so much, and sharing, you know, what they're going through personally. Jeremy always been, you know, obviously a big advocate for mental health in the industry, and and just like this is the most challenging experience any of us have been in in our lives i mean we weren't alive in 1917 for the Spanish uh, right. flu epidemic so it's th- this is nothing this is something none of us have ever had to deal with before
3: yeah i mean the fears were really realized this week about the reality of shutting down restaurants um la and new york san francisco obviously are some of the bigger cities, but it's popping up in smaller cities as well. Um, sometimes people forget that restaurants are small businesses with yeah. really insanely small rooms of maneuvering for finances. So the, yeah, the markets um,
6: are unbelievably slim, and they've just gotten slimmer in the last few years as you know, labor costs are going up and ingredient costs are going up and rent is going up, and it's... Like I said, it's already so, so, so tight. And then when you, you know, you propose closing a restaurant down for a day, let alone a week. And Mm -hmm. it's like, just people don't know how they're going to come back from it. Like it's not an, it's, they want to be responsible, but it's also not an option. Like you don't, you operate, you know, offset a week. So this week's sales, which are non-existent now, we're supposed to pay last week's payroll. Right. And now you're and, you know, yeah.
3: Yeah, and um, it seems that delivery and takeout is a band-aid and that while it is a shift that some people might be able to excel at, it's not gonna be a long term solution.
6: It's not gonna be a long term solution for these restaurants and I mean there are in you know there are examples of people who are really Trying to do it correctly, like a lot of people are just shifting to trying to deliver their current menu, which just doesn't work for a lot of restaurants. Their menus don't translate well to delivery. Um, but, you know, again, at the, you know, the Ressa Kenyan group, like they just basically took two days and were like, okay, now we're we're only introducing things that are going to sell, that are going to travel well for delivery. We're going to start selling items from the larder so you can make your own dishes at home etc. It's just trying to actually think through the process. I mean, it's creating, it's a short term band aid for most of these restaurants. And I don't know how long a lot of them will continue to do it. You know, there's obviously a lot of people, I think a lot of people this week are probably going to be afraid to Mm -hmm. order too much delivery, because there's still so much unknown. But as it as it's become becoming clear, that, you know, the virus is not spread through, you know, food. Um, It is, you know, I think it's just going to be people have to take every precaution possible and make sure that, you know, all of your employees are being, having their temperature checked on arrival and departure, that you're, you know, you're using gloves and changing them between every single dish, washing your hands constantly. Like, as long as these precautions are followed, You're not putting anyone in any danger and, you know, people are going to, as uh, one friend aptly put it this morning, get really tired of their own cooking pretty quickly. Um,
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to go back to 2008, 2009, when the recession hit and how restaurants swung to more comfort food. You saw the rise of the burger, you saw fried chicken. Yeah. And they were seen as a place for people to have a little bit of refuge, a little bit of respite from the world that was slowly falling apart um, because of an economic collapse. Yeah. But now you're seeing a flip with restaurant tours or restaurants being pointed at with fingers of saying, you're the cause or your place of business is what's spreading disease. And while not unf- untrue to some point, you know, yep. where we need to create social dis- distancing, that has to take a mental toll on these people who have entered what is essentially a business of service.
6: Absolutely. so Your whole life and yeah. service. And we we as an industry have been subject to an incredibly stringent, um, you know health code rules for so long that it's like it's kind of it's shocking for people to be all all of a sudden questioning you know the safety of these restaurants that are have been you know stellar members of the community for so long and it's like I like you said social distancing is necessary but mm-hmm. you know, if you can get that same food you know delivered or picked up etc and then not pose a risk to you then that shouldn't be a deterrent
3: yes so with this shift and with so many people who are working day-to-day or week-to-week in these types of food jobs what does the immediate future look like for them what is los angeles doing to help and where can people find support in the restaurant community or outside the restaurant community as they go through this tough time?
6: I mean, outside of the restaurant community, I'll backtrack here. So basically short term, it's, it's really, it looks really bleak in terms of so many of these groups are just laying off all their employees because they don't know when they're going to reopen. Um, now, thankfully there's, California has, you know, expanded and expedited the unemployment benefits. Um, but again, that's, that's nerve wracking. It's like, how long is that going to take? I have a family, you know, you've got these people have families to feed in many cases. They're working many, many jobs. Um, how does this affect undocumented workers? How, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of things at play there and there's just a lot of, a lot of people out of work and, um, you know, I've had so many difficult conversations with people who've just literally had to, you know, stand there and watch while you know the leader of their group lays off everyone they worked with for the last, you know, in some cases, thirteen years. Um, hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's tough. I think it seems like there's a couple of groups that are putting together ways to help industry workers there's a it's similar to like a bond measure that a group out of new york i think started um where basically you're se- they're selling um cash value vouchers for restaurants that are a part of it and then contributing that to workers um or who are out of work i think you know at short you know the for me personally, like the only thing I know I can do is as, you know, as all this starts shaking out and I know that this is, this is a longer haul thing and there's going to be a need for, uh, there will be a need for food production and take out and delivery. And I'm working on putting together something that's just geared exclusively, you know, using the secret lasagna format, just exclusively towards delivery and takeout, just to start hiring people. So a lot of ghost kitchens, a uh, lot of so Kitchens that are closed all around the city. And it's a, you know, it's just, I, I, it feels like every time my phone vibrates, it's another person who is out of work or needs a job. And they're just, they're, they're just like, I don't know what to do. like I, I don't, I don't know how, and obviously I think, you know, I'm telling everyone to talk to their landlords. There is, you know, Obviously, there's a moratorium on uh, residential evictions and they're working on commercial. But, you know, landlords are going to have to. It's going to be a hit for them, but they're going to have to work with people because, you know, as what are they going to do? They can't evict
4: every restaurant.
6: And you can't, like, what you you can't, you know, even if you couldn't, you don't want to just end up with no tenants. Like, no one's going to be able to pay their fucking rent.
3: Well, no one's going to be able to come back in to fill those spots. I think that's the biggest issue is that what we've seen the last few years of these revolving restaurants where I take over this place, you leave that place, I come into this place, there's no one lining up. No. Um, Now, the White House and the government have been pushing through or talking about an $850 billion package.
4: Yeah.
3: And – it was good to hear that restaurants were mentioned as part of this aid package. Now, the focus may have been on franchisees for fast foods, but they were still talking about restaurants nonetheless, or people that have uh, businesses with less than 500 employees. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen, or how are people going to best go about getting money or getting support with the government and working hand-in-hand with them because you're seeing people like Kwame from Kith and Kin saying, yeah. please shut us down officially. Please give us guidelines. So what would you like to see the government do? How would you like to see restaurants work together? Is there a way to formalize this so it's not just um, trying to get a little bit of money here from a bond group or trying to get just some... Yeah personal worker aid. What's an well, ideal scenario for you?
6: I mean, obviously I, th- I think it is going to be incredibly necessary for the government to fig- figure something out to help, especially restaurants. I mean, it's, this is small business in the U S you know, approximately accounts for like 48 or 49% of the workforce. And, it's that's the sector that's being the hardest hit and especially obviously and for the purpose of this conversation restaurants. it is i mean it's i i don't know it's it's hard to know how that's going to work because everything seems to always be encumbered by so much red tape when it comes to figuring this shit out um with the government but I think, you know, it is going to be absolutely necessary. I don't know. I have no idea what that looks like. I think it is going to have to be some form of, uh, you know, bailout and for lack of a better expression to help these restaurants open back up because I there's just, there's so many places that so many places, especially mom and pops, but um, and like independent restaurants is a better expression, I guess, but that if they close down, they, like they don't have the economic wherewithal to reopen, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, and, and maybe there's going to be, you know, maybe that's something where the government works with large, you know, um, restaurant wholesalers like West central and Cisco, et cetera, to form some sort of guaranteed, you know, program a loan program or something to get people back on their feet with cost of goods but the problem with all of that is it's just deferring a big balloon and you just you just lost a bunch of revenue you know it's like i was just on the phone with someone earlier from the uh doordash corporate and you know like their issue with how grubhub is like they're trying to figure out an actual solution that makes sense for their restaurants but like you know, Grubhub is rolling out this huge thing and promoting it as you know we're 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 getting people restaurants are going to be paying commission fees for delivery and takeout, but the language is actually they're deferring it. So yeah, all over now the restaurants are saddled with this huge amount of you know commission they have to pay back, and I'm you know I hate to break it to you, but the margin barely allows for a restaurant to be profitable as it is. Yeah. So especially with yeah, someone
3: taking a giant chunk out.
6: Yeah, exactly. There's no, like uh, there is no giant chunk. It's like if someone, if you're operating and, and whoever you're having handle your, you know, taxes or something, forgets to pay your sales tax. And then you get a phone call and like, you don't have that sitting in the account. It doesn't work. Out.
3: Yeah. Well, look, we're going to take a little bit of musical break. We're going to give people a chance to enjoy a song, have a chill out for a second. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about um, chefs and social media and then other people who are in the food industry, like bookstores, farms, um, purveyors and what they're going through. And uh, also maybe some tips for what people can cook in the kitchen as they start looking at their pantry. So here's a song from the archives on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
7: In drop-top convertibles. I wish that I could do something to ground him the king of everything that once was, but now is gone. i only see him, I'll see him at four in the morning by the 7-Eleven smoking prescription water. Rain. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
3: whoa. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are still with Chef Royce Burke of Secret Lasagna, and as we talked about in the first part, um, you know restaurants are really a big part of the conversation of what's going on now especially uh, even more so than what we saw during the economic uh, recession of 2008. And I think part of that has to do with restaurant and food cultures, mainstream and popular rise, um, and also the use of social media across the board. And yeah. chefs have really been using social media to not just address their own workers, but to talk to the government and things like that. You know, you have David Chang, Jessica Kozlau, um obviously you. And why do you think that it's been really important for chefs to get on social media to really talk about what's going on and how is it helping the situation?
6: I mean, so to start at the beginning of that point, I think, you know, yes, the, the restaurant industry and food culture has become much more a part of mainstream culture and, and more important to most people. And so it's on everyone's minds a lot, but also... Like two thousand eight was really hard on restaurants obviously, but mm-hmm. they weren't being forced to shut down. You know, if you could still sell food, you could still sell food. And I think now we're looking at a world where in order to preserve public health, we're just we just are being we have to close the restaurants. And I I was just uh, Bobby Stucky of uh, Frasca Food and Wine and a number of other restaurants in his group was just talking about this earlier where, you know, they're They're supportive of the decision to shut them down, but now the insurance that they've been all paying into for all of this time is, you know, come to find out back in 2006, they submitted those insurance companies made a a change in their regulations or their um, rules that does not uh, cover closure for reasons of a virus, et cetera. So now they're, you know, now they're standing there trying to figure, you know, basically, again, just asking the government, like, like, we have to be helped, like, there is no, we have no room for error, we have no room to reopen if there is no, you know, benefit. And in terms of chefs on social media, I think, you know, it's incredibly helpful, especially now that chefs have more of a voice and there's more presence and like, even interacting with, you know, my followers, it's, you know the people from all walks of life and it's just helpful for people to know what is going on and how restaurants are handling it how the the people that they look up to are handling it on every front you know i mentioned jeremy fox earlier you know just being honest about how he's you know he's dealing with the hardest time in his career which is saying a lot because that man has been through some shit and
3: he's been through some shit
6: yeah and it's and this is now the hardest time in his career and he's, you know, dealing with how, you know, I've got to stay present and, and, uh, you know, be that person for your restaurant family, for the people who work for you. But you're also just dealing with like, this is, this is such a shock to the system. And so it's like, I've just been focusing on what I can do and what projects I can move forward and how I can help because otherwise it's so easy to just, become numbed and depressed because it's just the wave of it's just like a constant wave of terrible news and every time you're you know it feels like you're readjusting for whatever announcements especially on sunday and monday but like just readjusting every 15 minutes like i changed a business plan you know probably seven times in the course of an hour because yeah. this is constantly changing and you're, you're trying to figure out how to deal with it. And it's nerve wracking because you don't want to do something and then have the government say, no, you can't do that. But you know, we, we have to do what we got to do. I think it's, I think it is really, really helpful. I think people, especially people with um, the kind of weight that David Chang and, you know, uh, Daniel blue or some of the, in the really heavy hitters, yeah. I think, think it's going to be important for them to you know be the voice of you know while they may themselves be part of groups be the voice of independent restaurants because a lot of those independent restaurants don't have that voice Uh, yeah i
3: mean when you look at how to unify these places and who can lobby for them you're gonna have to turn to the people who have the most power and the money which are restaurant groups to help to help get money into these pockets. I mean, you look at Jose Andreas and his work that he's doing. You look at Eric Horn and doing, you know, the million gallons of soup. And you're already starting to see people emerge as community leaders for which sometimes can be, you know, dispersed or, you know, not unified community. Yeah. Um, but I think people got to realize that this is the end of what we knew of one reality of restaurants. Yeah. Because when oh. we come back from this, it's going to be different restaurants. It might be the same name, but it's going to be a different approach. And yeah, and people are going to have to understand that um, we're entering into a, we're entering a, a new, new type era. of business. Yeah. It's a new era.
6: I think, um, that, you know, I, we've talked about this before, but... You know, the model, this model for restaurants hasn't worked in a long time. Right. Um, in reality, I think. Um, and, and it's and this is just you're not you're not going to people are not going to. Reopen the same way if they do at all, it's you you have to you've got to be more adaptable and more you know, especially for people outside of a group, you, you have to be able to figure out how to actually make this business work. And if you can't, then, you know, as much as we all want to feed people, you know, everyone has to eat too. And I think, um, again, you know, we keep coming back to the groups and, you know, some of the people who are doing, you know, big things in different ways, but especially, you know, the people who've been most inspiring to me, on the ground level in Los Angeles are the people who are, you know, they're not doing big splashy things. They're just really focusing. I've been in constant contact with a close friend who's the communications director for the rest Canyon group. And that is, at least in terms of all the people I've been talking to, which is a lot, the only group that in all of their decisions is putting the, their ongoing well-being and caring for their entire employee family at the top of the priority list as
0: mm-hmm. they're
6: constantly pivoting and trying to figure out how to do you know how to keep everything moving and you know it's it's impressive to see people put their money where their mouth is as well as just like handling it correctly and hunkering down and figuring out okay how do we now pivot these restaurants to uh, not 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 just okay. We're immediately going to delivery only. We're just going to throw a whole menu up there. That doesn't make sense because your whole menu doesn't deliver correctly. You mm-hmm. know they're actually pivoting and retooling their all of their menus to be to, to deliver and you know figuring out like Sonora Town just put together their whole kit for you know they they have you can get twenty four tortillas and this much yeah. meat much rice you know it's basically finding yeah Finding, finding ways that actually make sense to help people and provide them with the resources they need to maintain you know isolation i
3: want to talk a little bit about the food adjacent or restaurant adjacent community businesses that are being affected yeah um you know my i've seen what our friends over at now serving are doing and yeah. um you know there's specialty suppliers like regalos foods out of new york and then also oh, places no, like no, the no. local farmers market which yeah in many ways are um the lifeblood of ingredients and produce for these restaurants in la exactly. um can you talk a little bit about how these businesses are going to be affected how you can support them and and what the future looks like for these types of, of independently owned businesses.
6: Of course. I think like the farmer's markets, I'm really grateful that um, they're still being considered a, you know, a necessary um, business um, and that they're going to continue running. I think it is, it is super vital for people to continue being able to get the ingredients, both restaurants and, you know, consumers. Um, and it's, you know, it's just good to get outside. I was at the market on Sunday in Hollywood and it's, you know, it's farmer's markets for chefs are like family reunions. And so it's, you're just always walking around hugging people. So it was an interesting, you know, just bumping elbows, literally with, you know, uh, Samaristi and, uh, I ran into Ellen Bennett as well, of uh, Helene Bennett. And it's just, you know, seeing, um, Everyone was just trying to, you know, talk about their shit at a distance and figure yeah. out what they're doing and get their produce and get stuff for their families. It's important that places like that continue to remain in business. Now, serving obviously is the literal hub of this community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's where I go when I'm stressed out. And, um, you know, they're making the decision, which. They should, you know, if they need to close the business, uh, the brick and mortar. But places like that, you know, you can go online and order books. Um, you can uh, buy the merch, etc. They're working. Everyone's working on those fronts. And I'm not sure specifically on regales Foods, but I know a lot of specialty food people will be making, you know, really working on expanding their website offerings so that you can get, you know, their whole offering and, and have it shipped directly to you. I think you know it's all of those businesses are directly supported by the restaurant business, so they're hurting yeah. just. So much. It's you know, and then all the people who are usually going to those businesses are now out of a job. Yeah. So there's just so much. I think it's you know, hopefully getting the message that all the restaurants, the offshoot businesses, the surrounding business, etc., all need consumer support more than ever. There's you know a lot of. Consumers who are still going to have paychecks, who are still going to, or have have the you know financial ability to ride this out, keep supporting, you know, keep getting takeout and delivery, buy stuff for your larder from Birdie G's, get, you know, get just buy books, buy cookbooks online, and and cook stuff for yourself, you know, do buy merch, buy shirts, cards, hats, pins, shirts, socks. Hats. I know everything. I know. You, I'm sure you're. I've been seeing your idea. I'm sure you're running out of.
3: Room. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. out of closet space, but I'll 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 put it in the in the in the garage. I'll keep buying hats and shirts and things like that. Um, I want to shift a little bit to your own personal kitchen and the conversation of people cooking at home because that's what a lot of people
6: yeah
3: are going to be looking to now. Um, you know, I was at the supermarket last Thursday. Um, I was at the supermarket today. And last Thursday was scary, you know, yeah. and today was a little less scary um, because there's still food on the shelves. There are tireless people working in both the large chain supermarkets, but and as we're blessed in L.A. to have a lot of local Mexican supermarkets, Korean okay. supermarkets, Japanese supermarkets, you know, so there's food. Um, yeah. But,
4: you supply know, people chain. Are gonna be,
3: supply chain is good for now um and hopefully it's going to stay that way every indication shows that but as people move into shelter at home what advice can you give to people in stocking their pantry if they're going to be at home for a couple of weeks because bananas apples produce that'll last for a little bit but maybe you can't go out and run and get fresh goods so what would your advice be
6: well, you know, I'm I'm truly hoping that there's always a way to get fresh produce because that is important for your health. But I think as far as getting those staples that you need in-house, obviously um, beans are a really big one, great source of protein. Um, I think uh, just getting those basic things that you can make pretty much anything with, tomato sauce, diced tomatoes, and tomatoes in any form, you know, you can convert to a lot of different things, flour. Sugar, salt—you know the things you need for baking. Um, I think there's—it's—it's been—it's been interesting because I've been—I've had a lot of friends reaching out through other friends on you know different apps like Marco Polo, etc. Just like, basically, like I have this and I have this and I don't know what to do with it. And it's been—you know—I've been coming up with ways to make something out of nothing my whole life, and so it's been. It, uh, an interesting and uh sometimes entertaining way to help people out by just coming up with ways for them to make something of what they have but i think you know the key is just get getting those staples getting your your base things you can always make something out of getting protein and meat that you can do different things with make big batches of things so you can do big stews pot roasts um you know and you can do those with vegetables and mushrooms etc if you're vegan or vegetarian i think there's a lot of things you can do make big batches of soup it's um uh, things oh, yeah. you can do to set yourself up you know you can make a week's worth of meals in a day and you know stock that freezer stock the refrigerator etc and just you know set yourself up so you have some things that are just ready to go for ease of use and um make your life a little bit easier. I think it's, it's, it's just all about getting those basics.
3: And what have you been cooking yourself? (laughs) What have you been making that has, I mean, look, I can only speak for my daily normal routine, That getting in the kitchen and cooking something is a way to have control and to calm the day down and to give myself a little bit of respite from like the craziness. And so, what are you cooking? What would you recommend? Um, Because, you know, not everyone has made stews or tomato sauces before. Like, what's something that's easy or approachable, recipe inspiration, or any resources that people could go to um, when they get in the kitchen?
6: I think, um, what have I been cooking lately? Like, yesterday, uh, a friend who's uh, staying here was asking she wanted to make a a turkey burger and i was like well let me just make it and i'll you know i just seared the turkey burgers in a pan with some olive oil and salt and cumin and just started raiding the spice cabinet seeing what makes sense a little bit of you know rosemary, and parsley and then mix in some you know canned great northern beans uh some citrus a dash of fish sauce a couple things and some celery for some texture Like simple things like that that you can just throw Mm. together are always great. You know, my comfort foods are always the casseroles that my mom used to make growing up when we had very little, um, which are always so much fun. I mean, my, and those are as simple as um, one of my all time favorites is called, I think chicken Devon. And it's, you just make rice and then you serve the dish over a bed of rice, but you take, chicken, you know, whether you have a roast chicken or a rotisserie chicken or just chicken breast, you sear in the oven with some salt and pepper and olive oil, shred them, put a layer of chicken down, put some broccoli that's just lightly steamed in. And then I think you mix uh, a can of cream of chicken soup and like a cup of mayo, a couple of tablespoons mm. of pork, and uh, some lemon juice and then spread that over the top and cover with breadcrumbs and bake it for half an hour. And it's I just it. so
4: it's
6: just one of those like, you know, American home cooking classics that may not sound appetizing but is absolutely freaking delicious.
3: And no, no, my mom has a a chicken recipe that is um chicken with Lipton onion soup, apricot preserves and french dressing. And you, you oh, bake it, and you serve it over white rice. <laughs>
6: That's fantastic. That reminds me of like a, a chicken and wine dish that my mom used to make. I need to figure out how to. Yeah, no, it's, there's there's so many of those. It's like, you know, you can make the make the dish on the back of the leek onion soup packet. It's, it's 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 great. It's funny.
3: So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And while it is a very serious and heavy and confusing time, um, is there a silver lining? Like when we come out this on the other side, do you think that we will see some industry changes? Do we think we will see some rise in new communities? What do you think is one or two positives that we can at least hold on to as we go through this tough time together.
6: There there are absolutely positives. I think you know, it's important in the middle of, you know, everything it's like you have to focus on the positives and you have to focus on on where we're going. There are obviously grim realities and and that's not going to change, but I think you know, I think the industry is going it's going to have to change. I think there will be mainstays, you know, obviously in the fine dining world that will continue um, more or less along the same trajectory. But I think that middle ground that's, that, you know, we've talked about before that's always been and consistently for the last several years has just been terrible and and becoming really, really, really hard to make a living in is going to, it's going to change. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, Um, I can't see the future. I'm, you know, like right now I'm focusing on trying to create things that are, you know, create concepts that are affordable, that deliver, you know, very well. And, and are, you know, it's, it's tough. You're trying, you know, you're trying to find ways to create as many jobs as possible while keeping labor costs low. And, um, I don't know. I think, I think the silver lining in my mind is that it's going to force. I think nobody wanted to like take a step back and actually change the way we do business because that requires a lot of, you know, that's going to force our hand and we're going to have to figure it out. Um, And it's going to be, you know, I'm sure somewhat painful, but um, it's necessary. And, You know, and I think world, you know, on the world stage, I think it's going to force, you know, whether or not you believe in universal health care, et cetera, it's going to force us to consider the fact that with, you know, pandemics like this, we we have to, people have to have access to better health care. Otherwise, you know, I mean, that's the only way to curtail health
3: care has got to be a right and not a privilege.
6: Yeah. That's it's going to change and i don't i don't care who you support it's just a um, yep. it's just a fact so
3: yeah
6: you know it's it's it, the hardest thing to see you know people cooks and dishwashers and everyone else getting laid off and you know i know there's there's some obviously some groups that have healthcare for those people that will continue at least for you know through the end of april but there's so, so the overwhelming majority just have nothing and I that I don't know how to yeah all I know know how to do is cook those people so yeah well Royce
3: I can't thank you enough for all of your help and support if people want to I would say your Instagram is probably your best. So if they want to follow you and updates and where they can help and get in touch with you, uh, what's the Instagram page?
6: Everyone who's doing takeout delivery, getting the word out as much as possible, keeping everyone posted on what we're doing in the industry. Um, So yeah, my my Instagram is Royce underscore Burke and you can follow for updates there. Um, Thank you, Darren, for always. Thank you. Everybody.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. We have another song from the archives here on Stacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
5: When she was 45, they gave her 40 years, 40 years to die. Oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? He pulled his heart away and said his last bite. I